Good morning, church family. This morning's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 25. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 25. Let us listen to the holy God-breathed words of Almighty God. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. May God bless this reading and our hearing of his word. Good morning. I guess you've noticed I like to say good morning, huh? Well, at least I didn't say good morning when it was afternoon. Hey, good morning. Uh, I have the privilege this morning of uh, teaching here. Pastor David um, is taking his family a little bit on a, on a spring break. 
I guess even the pastors deserve a little break every, every so often. So I have the privilege of being here this morning with you. Um, let me pray before we start. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. And Father, I pray that you set aside any words that I say to, to be able to emphasize the words that you say because my words have no life in them. Father, I pray that you would um, show us the hope that we, that we have in Jesus and that through the examination of Luke 23 that we'll find that Jesus is not only innocent, but he is also who he claims to be, to be God himself. And Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have offered us. And I pray, Father, that this morning you would open our eyes to the truth of your gospel. We thank you so much for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we, we have been following through uh, Christ's life for a long time in the Gospel of Luke. And, and for the last few weeks, we've been analyzing Jesus' betrayal, his, his trial, and his final trial, actually, and his arrest as well. And this morning, Jesus is going to be brought before a man named Pilate. And Pilate is a very important character in the New Testament, even though there isn't much information about him. He's a very important character in the New Testament and, and one character that often we don't know much about. Last week, Pastor David actually analyzed Jesus' hearings um, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. And uh, we call that Jesus' civil trials. If you remember, Jesus has had two different types of trials. He's had the religious trials. He's been before Annas in John. We haven't looked at that in John 18. He's been before Caiaphas in Luke chapter 22, verse 54. And he has been before the Sanhedrin at the end of chapter 22. Now, Pilate, now, now Jesus is going to move into a different type of trial. It's not going to be a religious trial. It's going to be what we call a civil trial. And we begin to analyze that last week when he is placed before Pilate for the first time. Today he's going to be moved into Herod's jurisdiction, and then he's going to come back to Pilate for his final uh, civil trial evaluation. Now, that's important because the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 23, as we noticed last week, we see something extremely important about Pilate. We see his predicament. Now, if we had the time to go through this again and analyze Luke chapter 23, we would realize that, especially in the beginning, we realize that Pilate is actually stuck between Jesus' innocence and the fact that he wants to please the Jewish leadership. He's stuck between Jesus being innocent and his perception of what the Jewish leadership is going to think about him in his decisions to actually release Jesus. Now, here's what you need to know about Pilate. Pilate became the governor of Judea about 26 AD. And um, when he was introduced in the New Testament, Pilate was actually introduced in the New Testament as a weak character. He was always thinking about himself. He was portraying himself as, as through the words of Scripture as an individual who, who makes self, selfish decisions. Now, when Josephus introduces Pilate into the history books, he places Pilate and he describes Pilate's three main actions. And I think it's important for us before we dive into Luke chapter 23 
to actually just take a little look into this situation here. So when he was appointed governor of Judea in, in 26 AD, he actually arrives in Jerusalem. He brings all his soldiers with him, and he marches into Jerusalem, and he's carrying great banners with the image of Caesar. So as you can imagine, the Jewish people did not enjoy that very much. They begin to complain. He's in Jerusalem. He goes back to Caesarea where he lived. Now he's in Caesarea. The Jews follow him to Caesarea for five days and they're complaining about it, complaining about it. And then Pilate says, enough. Says, if you do not stop, Josephus writes, if you do not stop, I will kill all of you. So they rip their shirts off and they put their necks out there and they say, go for it. And Pilate cannot do it. Now, between the battles of the wheel, that is the first loss for Pilate. Second, Pilate decides to bring water into Jerusalem. Now, you know Jerusalem sits up higher, so everything goes up towards Jerusalem. So it's a good idea, right? You bring water into the city. Well, but for you to do a project like that, you have to pay for it. And for you to pay for it, you have to have the money. So Pilate has this amazing idea. He says to himself, I'm going to use the money from the temple. The Jews are going to pay for this. And the Jew says, there's no way. This is idolatry. You cannot use the money from the temple to pay for this. And so in the second battle, Pilate loses again. Now there's a third one. And this time, Pilate actually decides to, to come inside of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And he, he decides to place banners inside of the temple with the image of Tiberius Caesar. Now, once again, not a very clever idea. Actually, maybe clever, but not very wise idea from this man. So the Jewish people saw that as an idolatry once again. And Pilate said, this time, no way. I'm not taking anything out of here. So by this point, Herod hears about the situation, and he sends a message all the way to Caesar, all the way in Rome. And Rome sends a message to Pilate saying, listen, take those banners out from the Jewish temple and place them in Caesarea inside of a pagan temple. Third battle, third loss. Now, here's what you need to know about this. Pilate's past relationship with the Jewish leaders in this situation present a dilemma to Pilate between his relationship with the Jews now in the fact that he's being held responsible of judging, of analyzing, of evaluating Jesus. He understands the danger that's posed before him and the accusation that the Jews are actually bringing before him because in verse 4 of chapter 23, look with me before we dive into our section here, it says this, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. He has already declared that Jesus is innocent. There's nothing based on what we can evaluate about Jesus that will carry this guy up to a punishment. Even the accusation that Jesus wants to be a king, Luke 23, verse 3. Now, Dr. Thomas Constable, a former uh, Dallas theological professor, says this. It says, Pilate wanted to preserve his position. Listen to this. He wants to preserve his position more than he wanted to man maintain justice. 
It was the will of the people, not Pilate, that led Jesus to crucifixion. So now let's dive into this, verse 6 and 7. You have your first point in your outline, Pilate's self-promotion. Let's look and see how this actually took place. Verse 6 and 7. Now, when Pilate heard this, and what is this? Verse 5, look at this. But they persisted in saying he incites the people. So this is the accusation again. He, they, they, he incites the people by teaching them throughout all Judea. It started in Galilee and it ended up here. Now Judea was where Jerusalem was and Galilee was the northern part. So they're saying, hey, this guy's been teaching all over the nation. And so when they bring the accusation saying that Jesus has been teaching not only in Judea, but also in Galilee, he says, when he heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. So he wants to make sure he's investigated. If this accusation is right, Jew, Jews must be right about Jesus being a Galilean. And so he hears the accusation. And when Pilate hears that Jesus may be a Galilean, he decides to go further and investigate this. And it comes out saying he was from, Gal from the Galilee. And then he says this in verse 7. Look at this. When he learned that he was from Herod's juris juris uh, jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who also, listen, listen to the irony of God's word, who also happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. Now, according to verse 7, Jesus was from Herod's jurisdiction. He was actually, he, he, was, he grew up in that area, so he's part of that. And so what he does is, he's going to send Jesus to Herod. Now, here's the question that comes up. Is, is, is Pilate afraid of judging Jesus right now? Why is he passing the responsibility on? He's not passing the responsibility on because he's afraid of judging Jesus because he's already judged him innocent. He's passing the responsibility in the sense of let's evaluate him from other, with, with other perspective. Because if Herod has something about Jesus that I don't know, then maybe he's not innocent after a while. So, so, so let's just see him. Now look at Herod's Verse 89, his desire to see Jesus. Now listen to what it says. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Now you, you keep those words in mind just for a second. Very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some miracles, miraculous signs. So Herod questioned him at considerable length. Jesus, listen to this, gave him no answer. Luke's going to describe the reception here of Jesus as one of great satisfaction. Like Herod really wants to see this guy. The text says that he was, he was glad in his heart that he desired that. Now, if you look at Herod's story, he also has a very interesting story, a little bit more familiar to us. Herod was married, and one day he just desired to have an affair. And he has an affair with his brother's wife, Herodias. Not a good thing. John the Baptist comes in, and John the Baptist goes, and he confronts both of them and says, Hey, listen, this is not the right thing to do. Your sin is an offense to God. So, when you live in the flesh and somebody confronts with the truth, you have two options. You either accept that or you become angry in rejection to the confrontation that you just went through. Where Herod didn't like it, but his wife was really mad, to the point that he, he, she ends up asking for John the Baptist's head on a silver plate. And this is what happens. John gets beheaded. 
But look what Luke chapter 9, verse 7 through 9 says. Here's what it says. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about everything that was happening, and he was thoroughly perplexed. Because some people were saying that John had been raised from the dead, while others were saying that Elijah had appeared. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago had been risen. Now listen to what he says. Herod said, I had John beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? So Herod wanted to learn more about Jesus. Herod's desire to see Jesus was out there in the opening. And when this happens, we see his curiosity over Jesus was extremely evident. Pilate may have been aware of that curiosity, and now Pilate is in front of Jesus, and he says, listen, this is not a good thing. I judge him innocent. The crowd is starting to go crazy. He is innocent, and he is from Galilee. Maybe I need to bridge the gap here. So he sends him to Herod to be evaluated. So Herod hears that Jesus is coming, and the gladness in his heart is, is, is evident in verse 8, as we just saw, because that is actually the only chance he will ever have to be in front of Jesus, to be able not only to ask questions, but to also maybe see some miracles being performed, which is exactly what he wants, but what he doesn't realize, what he doesn't realize is that that will be the last time he will be in front of the miracle maker. So when Jesus is brought up before Herod, and after, as the text says, a long interrogation, here's what he does. Listen to this. He performs no miracles, and he says no words. This is so significant. It sounds insignificant as we say this, that he said no words and he performed no miracles. But this is so significant, church, that all four Gospels will mention this. Perhaps, here's an assumption, because it reflects the biblical prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7, that says this, he was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before the shears, he did not even open his mouth. Now, there's no way in the New Testament, there's nowhere in the New Testament that makes that connection that I just mentioned to you. But I wonder, as the creator of the world went to that situation, if he had the prophecy of Isaiah in his mind, understanding that he would not open his mouth. According to Matthew chapter 27, verse 12, Jesus also did not respond to the chief priests and the leaders. Perhaps his silence was a sign, a sign of punishment because all of them up to this point have had the possibility of coming with the message of the gospel and being confronted about it, and they have rejected every single possibility. In Herod's case, he rejected John the Baptist. To the Jewish leaders, they have rejected the message of the Creator. And when it gets to this point, when the culmination to Jesus' final hours on this earth comes, he says no words. Now listen to verse 10 through 12. The fact that Jesus was despised and mocked. 
verse 10. The chief priests and the experts in the law were there intensely accusing him. Even Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then dressing him in an elegant clothes, Herod sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other, for prior to this, they had been enemies. Now, we know that there are some people that have been following Jesus because they experienced salvation. But we also know that there are some people following Jesus based on the benefits that Jesus being on earth brought them. The feeding of the 5,000. In this sense, Luke's going to describe here the following that's taking place in a negative light. It's negative because the first time the chief priests and the experts of the law only follow Jesus to actually accuse him and condemn him instead of express gratitude for salvation. The question that comes is why? And the answer is simple. Because they not only have rejected the message, but they have rejected the messenger. In verse 10 through 11, the text says right here that they actually, the accusations were intensive. That there was pressure, and even Herod's soldier ended up treating Jesus by despising him and mocking him. Now, did you notice that Herod was extremely eager to see Jesus? And now his eagerness is turning into mocking and calling him a king when he's actually not one in his own eyes. He went from being excited about him to now being a man who is despising him. Do you see how fast a heart that's away from the Lord can turn? Because he's not there for the truth. He's there for the show. And just like with John the Baptist, Herod's heart was a selfish heart that despised the truth but accepted the worldliness around him. He did not repent with John and he's not going to repent with Jesus. Now listen to this. If you go back a few pages on your Bible in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 and 32, listen to what Jesus will say. And he says this over and over and over again. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is going to repeat the same thing to his disciples three times. And this is what he says here in Luke. He says this, look, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything, listen, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He didn't say a few things. He didn't say almost everything. He didn't say half of the things. He didn't say 20% of the things. He said everything will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. And here's what it says. He will be mocked, mistreated, and spat on. And this is exactly what's happening right now. And that's exactly what a pagan leader's soldiers will do. They will mock and spit and despise the one who came to save. They join the mocking party. And in the process... They dress Jesus 
as a king. Now, if you remember in the beginning of Luke chapter 23, the Jews actually present Jesus not as one who is being subverting the nation, but one who is actually claiming to be Christ the king. So in order to mock the Jewish leadership and to mock Jesus, now the soldiers dress him as a king. They join the party. Herod's trials exposes a few things, and here's what it does. The arrogance, the ungodliness, the selfishness, of those in charge of evaluating the allegations brought up against Jesus. It exposes the sinfulness of the Jews in their dealings with an innocent man, and that's what happens when pride takes in. Now, here's another irony for you. (laughs) This text is full of it. And here's another one. Do you know what comes out of this trial? What verse 12 says, That very same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other, for prior to this, they had been enemies. Enemies will become friends, and an innocent man is about to be condemned. The irony of the matter is that sinful man will experience fellowship, and the Lamb of God will experience loneliness, and he will be separated eventually from his relationship with his perfect heavenly Father. Sinful man will rejoice, and the Savior, listen, church, the Savior will suffer. And at the end of the day, Jesus' passion will bring reconciliation even to the worst of sinners. Which later on, Paul calls himself the worst of them, and I think we could put ourselves in that place. That brings us to the last part of his trial. He's gone to Pilate. This guy is innocent. He gone, he's gone to Herod. Herod says, I find no accusation in him. He sends him back to Pilate. And now we see Pilate's self-protection. Look with me in verse 13 to 15. Then Pilate called together the chief priests and the leaders and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who was misleading the people. When, ex- when I examined him before you, Pilate, I did not find this man to be guilty of anything you accuse him of doing. Neither did Herod, for he sent this man back. Look, he has done nothing deserving death. And here's the first point of our time. Pilate's self-protection will lead to compromise in order to please. Compromise in order to please. Pilate calls the chief priest, and he calls the leaders. And, and every time you see this in inscription, you can associate the chief priest and the, the leaders with trouble. Because in the Gospels, they're always going after Jesus. There's nothing good about them. So Luke's going to say this. There's nothing good about the situation here. This, this is trouble. Pilate, for the second time, will judge Jesus to be innocent. He also attaches Herod's conclusion because Herod was actually the Jewish expert in Jewish affairs. So he's saying, hey, I find him no, to be guilty of nothing deserving death in On the other side, Herod has evaluated him. He knows a lot more than I do, and he finds him to be guilty of nothing. Herod's really trying to please the people and saying, listen, there's nothing here because he's always trying to protect himself. 
Pilate, for the second time, would do this. And listen to what Matthew 27, 19 says. And this is extremely interesting. He says this, as he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, he's about to judge Jesus, his wife sent a message to him. And here's what the message said. This trial was happening early, early in the morning. Pilate's wife is at home sleeping, and she sends a message to him to interrupt him in a judgment. So it must be an important message. And here's what it says. Have nothing to do with this man. I have suffered greatly as a result of a dream about him today. So she's home. She dreams about Jesus, that Jesus is innocent. Now, not only Pilate is, in a, is calling him innocent, Herod has called him innocent, and his wife's calling him innocent because she had a dream about him. Wow. All of them evaluated Jesus, and things begin to get worse on the outside. Listen to what Ten Hill says. He says, this represents, to talk about the, the crowd joining forces here, this represents a drastic change from the favor with, with which Jesus previously enjoyed with the people. The people always wanted to follow. They always wanted to enjoy the fellowship with him. And right now, that's not what's taking place. Where Jesus goes, people follow. So by abiding, by adding people here, Luke seems to be painting a picture of culpability. Before they sought Jesus for the things that they could get out of Jesus, but now they're standing on the side of the Jewish leaders condemning him. And ironically, the Bible says that we all stand condemned before him. Without a Savior, there is no hope. So Pilate evaluates Jesus' accusations again from a political perspective. He's trying to examine through legal terms how to actually get this guy out of his hands. And so here's the conclusion, verse 14, 15. Pilate finds this man again, once again, second time, not guilty of anything. And once again, irony strikes. Paul, Pilate's going to affirm Jesus Christ innocent, but to preserve himself, he admits he's willing to actually flog Jesus to punish him, to be able to release him so he can please the crowd that's outside saying, punish him, punish him, punish him. Now the flogging here was a very important part of this trial. If Jesus or anybody who was actually in the process of being crucified, they would be accused and condemned and the flogging would be the first stage of this they use an a instrument called flagellum, which was an instrument of punishment and had nine uh, laced up pieces of leather with pieces of um, iron and bones on the tip of it. And as they punish the people, they either lay them on a, on, a, on a stone or wrap their arms around a pole and they would hit them on the back. And as those bones and the, the iron would go in, the steel would go in, they would pull it down so it would rip the muscles. And then they would go on the other side and do it again and again and again. And all of a sudden, history says and Josephus says that many people, because of that punishment so severe, many people didn't even make it to the crucifixion. That they would have bones and, and, and body parts missing and you could see the organs of the people inside. That's how, that's how damaging the punishment was. And that's what they're asking Jesus, the innocent man, to receive.
Isaiah 52, 14 says that he was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. This is not happening here yet. It will happen in a few hours. So what Pilate is doing is to compromise the truth, listen to this, to please the Jews. To allow the immensity of the wrong that they were actually committing against Jesus as an innocent man to preserve himself and to protect his own integrity. Now here's a question for you. How often do you compromise God's truth in order to accommodate a lie? Or maybe you can think this way. How often do you actually ignore what God says about himself just like Pilate did in order to give in to peer pressure? For those of you who are my, my students at student ministry, you see peer pressure is not leading anywhere. How often do we choose to promote ourselves before others like Pilate did by punishing, by pushing aside what God says about us and about himself? How often do we protect ourselves thinking that it will help us in the long run, just like when we hide sin, just to be confronted later on with the reality that we have not only wasted our time, but we have lost part of ourselves in the process. Now here's the second part of this. Pilate is an unbeliever. It shouldn't surprise us. But in the days that we live in, sometimes the church compromises more than the world. We reject more the message of Christ than what the world does because the world is expected to do so. He's an unbeliever. He's willing to compromise the truth to accommodate the sinful agenda of his unbelieving world. That should serve as a warning sign to us because we ourselves belong to Jesus if we have a relationship with him. And that is all because we may find ourselves to be unjustly opposed by a sinful world that is willing to compromise the truth to maintain popularity, listen to this, to gain status, to achieve a particular position, and to keep a personal agenda moving forward. Now here's the thing. Your agenda and my agenda are not as important as God's agenda. And Pilate's agenda is going to be proved to be an agenda that's not as important as God's agenda. Now listen to verse 17. Not only we move from Pilate's self-protection here, but we're going to see that he is now, he's got coercive pressure upon him. Now, verse 17 through 21. Now, he was obligated to release one individual for them at the feast. But they all shoot, shout out together, take this man away, which simply means, in other words, execute him. Release Barabbas for us. This, this was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once again because he wanted to release Jesus. Here's the conflict. I want to please you, but this guy is innocent. But they kept on shouting, crucify, crucify him. And then this is what happens. A third time, Pilate says to them, why? What wrong has he done? 
I have found him guilty of no crime deserving death. I will therefore flog him and release him. Again, he's going back to, I'll punish him to satisfy you, and then I'll release him, but please be pleased with that. Luke's now describing the merging of forces here. Not only the religious leaders and the elders are coming, the chief priests, but now the crowd has joined, and the crowd is yelling, and, and, and the room is beginning louder and louder. The Jewish leaders have united, and they have enticed them into believe that Jesus was also guilty. And so Pilate feels obligated. Evans actually says the custom of releasing selected prisoners served to improve relations between, listen, the Roman ruler and the subjects. Now, was Pilate's relationship with the Jews very nice, very, very good stand? No. And even in this moment, he's looking at the situation and he's saying, this guy is innocent. He has lost three battles. If he loses one more, who knows? And he's standing the ground, and he's standing his ground, and all of a sudden they're shouting louder and louder and louder. Pilate then ends up giving in, and he has to follow suit in the, in the responsibility. So they request to release Barabbas. The, crowd, the crowd's request here represents a violent, listen to this, a violent disregard for Jesus' life and for innocent life. It is the true display of sin, sin, sinful anger and rage that's willing to trade an innocent man for a convicted killer to satisfy their sinful desires. Now, if you're like me, that likes justice, <laughs> you would maybe think, okay, Barabbas is really bad, but can we trade a really bad person for a super bad person? I mean, that would be a good deal, right? I know back, back a few years ago, the government had the clunker pro program where you brought your old junker to the, to the um, auto store and just just trade it, right? You brought your old car and got a new one and they gave you some money back. This is not what's happening here. You're not bringing junker. Jesus is not the junker here. There's no trade that's going to be good enough. But if Jesus was really bad, maybe that would be a good trade, but that's not the fact. So they request Bar Barabbas and the text says, according to Matthew, that Barabbas was a notorious criminal. Luke and Mark will say that Barabbas was not only a notorious criminal, they don't use those words, but they say that he was a man who enticed an insurrection, a real one, and then he was a murderer. That's a pretty bad dude. That's a resume. But they keep yelling, release him, release him. Now, I told you there's a few ironies in here. This is one of them. Barabbas means, the, the name Barabbas, the word bar means son, Abba means father. So they want, they're yelling right now, release, listen, the son of a father. And put into place of this guy, the son of the father. Release a criminal and place here an innocent man. To release that to release him would cause tremendous satisfaction for one 
and tremendous loss for the other. Jesus is declared here innocent of an, of an insurrection, but Barabbas was in jail because of one. One was convicted killer and a murderer and a criminal, and the other has been found not guilty. One had taking lives and the other one had giving lives. One offered restoration. He offered forgiveness. He offered healing openly everywhere he went. One was a sinner. The other one was a friend of sinners. The perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world and the man who was born. And before he was born, the angel said to his mom, he will come to seek and save the lost. So to demand his crucifixion is to request upon the person the worst of punishments. Now listen to the second point, verse 22. Pilate's final attempt to convince the crowd. By this point, he's in a really bad situation. His place is loud and he is losing the battle again. So verse 22 in, in there, we see that for the third time, listen again, the third time, he said to them, why, what wrong has he done? I have found him guilty of no crime deserving death. I will therefore flog him and release him. So he does, he tries, and he gets no success out of it. Verse 23 to 25 says this, he's gonna end up conceding for protection for his own safety. Do you see how the corruption on his nature has been progressing here? He tried to stand his ground, and he began to be pushed over, and all of a sudden now he's going to concede to what they're asking. Verse 23, but they were, they were insistent, and here's how they were insistent. They were insistent by demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and after, and, and, and their shouts prevail, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, he released the man they asked for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Don't miss this. What Luke's describing here, for those of us reading today, is that we need to understand that they have rejected the truth in order to accept and accommodate a lie. Now, I looked at my kids, and, and I realized that I, I see myself in them, and I feel, when I do that, I feel sorry for them. Because I see myself as a child. And, and as a father now, I see that sometimes their request to me does not help them in moving towards the right direction in life. And that reminds me of myself because I ask for the same things about when I was a kid to my parents. And here's what this crowd is doing. They're shouting, demanding, insisting, pushing their points. And they want to trade the truth for a lie. They want to trade hope for condemnation. They want to trade, they want to trade their anger for a temporary satisfaction by seeing Jesus on that cross. But listen, those people in there were the people that just a few days ago were there shouting Hosanna. But 
The Jews compromise the truth once again. What an irony. In order to seek their, their own will. And that's what the text says. Look at how sad this text ends. Verse 25. But he, Pilate, handed Jesus over to their will. The Jews compromised the truth in order to seek their own will. And now they're asking Jesus to be crucified. Herod compromised the truth by desiring to see miracles of Jesus and not to see the miracle maker. Pilate compromised the truth in order to accommodate the pressure of the demanding Jews. And now he's giving in to their own desires. And Jesus is about to be crucified. And history will forever handle this situation and place Pilate's name under the one whose Jesus was handed over. If he wanted to be famous, he got it. Now, what do we do with this? Let me give you three principles here really quickly. Number one, the gospel places strong emphasis on, on the responsibility of both Jewish leaders and the people for their ungodly request to Pilate to crucify Jesus. That is obvious in our text today. Now, you must remember that you're also responsible for what you do with the reality of Jesus. Number two, are you compromising the truth of the gospel for the approval of man, the desires of the flesh, or the mingling of your soul with worldliness ideologies? As Martin Luther said, compromise truth has no hope of rescuing the eternal souls of man and women. And third, let me end our time here together this morning with a question. Do you understand the great suffering Jesus went through in order to bridge the, Christ, the, the chasm between our lost souls and his heavenly Father? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. There's so much in this text. And Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes for your truth. That you would continue to grow us and mature us in Jesus. That you would teach us, Father, to know your way and to understand your way. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who may not yet have a relationship with you. Father, not only the pagan authorities called you innocent, your word says that you are a spotless lamb. The only one able to take away the sins of the world. So Father, it was an unjust trial. But we praise you because we know that there is victory that comes out after this. We thank you, Jesus, for suffering, the suffering we would not be able to withstand in order to give us the hope that we would not be able to achieve by ourselves. And Lord, give us life and give us life in abundance as you promise. In Jesus' name.